Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I am Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black in Annapolis, Maryland. Shiloh Brooks in Boulder, Colorado. We are starting off our adventure, um, our Anabasis, if you will, on Xenophon's The Anabasis of Cyrus, which I know I'm pronouncing that differently than how Jeff and uh, Shiloh will pronounce it, consider it my Baltimore accent. Um, we are going to be taking this one book at a time. If you are new to the pod, we actually went through The Education of Cyrus, also by Xenophon, the entirety of that a little bit ago, so you can check that out in our feed. And uh, what we're going to do is Jeff's going to give a few teasers as to what this book is about. And then Shiloh's going to start us off with an opening question, and we're going to explore book one. So all you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, I'm going to start my teaser by letting us off the hook. There are going to be lots of strange names in this podcast, Greeks and Persians. And uh, we're going to say Xenophon and Xenophon. We're going to say Anabasis and Anabasis. And we are going to forget names and we're going to forgive ourselves for these things. Apparently, Xenophon plays around with names, too, for any of you who know Greek and want to go deeper uh, than we're going. But here's my uh, hook for this. Uh, if you don't know the name Xenophon, Xenophon was a student of Socrates, like Plato. He's one of the less famous students of Socrates, or at least less famous than Plato. But he was very interested in his teacher, and he wrote some things about him. But he also wrote some things about life apart from his teacher. And in particular, this book is the story of Xenophon's involvement in a Greek mercenary expedition to Persia. He was part of a Greek force of 10,000 that went to help uh, one of the Persian royalty uh, against the king of Persia. Uh, not that Xenophon necessarily knew that from the beginning. Um, and then got cut off and isolated, he and 10,000 of his fellow soldiers. And they had to find their way home, in this case, back to the sea where they could be picked up by uh, ships. And over the course of that adventure, Xenophon himself became... Uh, in charge of this force of 10,000. Uh, so this is interesting because we're going to see a student of Socrates and we're going to see how he performed in a very demanding political situation, a very demanding military situation, how to get yourself out of hostile territory when you're surrounded and vastly outnumbered. Uh, so there, there's my sales pitch for listeners. Uh, uh, lots of exciting adventures to come. And with that, I'm going to pass it on to Shiloh. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And the only thing I would add is that Xenophon the man is intriguing in the sense that he's both lived both an extraordinary philosophic life and an extraordinary political life. And this is very rare in the history of philosophy to kind of max out <laughs> both of these. <laughs> um, and to me, uh, just there's something uh, enticing, eternally enticing about seducing about Xenophon more so than almost any other author. So um, with that, I, uh, I open it uh, this way. We have done uh, eight podcasts on a book that Xenophon wrote called The Education of Cyrus. The title of this book is The Anabasis of Cyrus. And when we were reading The Education of Cyrus, one of the things that we noticed was that the title was ambiguous in some ways. Um, the education of Cyrus. It could mean the education Cyrus undergoes or gets. It could also mean the education Cyrus provides to his men. The title of the Anabasis is similar. The Anabasis of Cyrus. It could be, for 
the ascent, that's what Anabasis translates to, the ascent that Cyrus undergoes or the ascent that Cyrus somehow makes possible uh, or provides a pathway to. And I point out this ambiguity um, in order to point out a, an additional parallel. And that is in the education of Cyrus, the education of Cyrus formally ended in book one. Um, then he went off on campaign. Well, in the ascent of Cyrus or the analysis of Cyrus, the apparent ascent of Cyrus ends in book one, which is the reading for today because spoiler alert, he dies. And yet the whole book is called The Ascent of Cyrus the same way the whole book previously was called The Education of Cyrus. So my opening question, both for chapter one or book one of, of the Anabasis and really for the whole book is in what sense does Cyrus today undergo an ascent or embody an ascent and for the future, just to keep this in the back of our minds after today, in what sense will he over the course of the entire book make possible an ascent or provide a pathway to or an example of an ascent. But let's focus it on today. The man dies, the ascent terminates apparently. Uh, so in what sense is today's reading uh, an ascent? I wonder if we could do maybe a few building blocks to get to get there. Um, you know, you use the word seduction, you use the word that Xenophon is very seductive to you. And it seems that Cyrus is extremely seductive to Xenophon, right? He's written two books about the guy. The first book was literally about Xenophon seducing, you know, a lot of people. And I'm wondering if maybe those two themes are tied together a little bit, like, or, or and, and the answer might be no, but how is your, your kind of being seduced by Xenophon, Xenophon's being seduced by Cyrus, and this title, The Ascent of Cyrus. I wonder if those are tied together at all. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's, a, that's a fruitful way to go. And um, it also gives me an opportunity to point out one of these trickinesses with names here. So this Cyrus is uh, known as Cyrus the Younger, right? And the Cyrus of the education of Cyrus, believe it or not, is Cyrus the Great. Uh, there are three Cyruses in the, in the Persian Empire. There's even a Cyrus the Elder. Um, but Cyrus the Great and Cyrus the Younger, they're about um, 150 years apart. Um, they're about five generations apart in the Persian dynasty. But uh, what Brian was trying to do by bringing the two of them together is exactly, I think, what Xenophon wants us to do. Because he doesn't say, oh, the Anabasis of Cyrus the Younger right? He doesn't say the education of Cyrus the Great. The name is just Cyrus. There's some sense in which these are the same guy, or this is the same possibility. And so, Brian, what you're suggesting that we do, I think, is um, we're seduced by Xenophon. We're interested in him. Xenophon seems seduced by Cyrus, by this possibility that has at least two examples. He's written two books about them. Um, and that seduction seems to be connected with this notion of what we're calling ascent, right? So let me suggest this. Um, ascent is always with respect to something. Let me suggest that the ascent in question is with respect to other human beings. And Cyrus somehow gets over other human beings, right? And that's a little bit like seduction, right? You get your way with other human beings. Um, 
so if we go that way, is, is there something we can find in this first book that would count as an ascent because it counts as a kind of seduction or getting one over on somebody else? Well, I mean, I don't know how much comparing to the old, uh, to the Cyrus from the education you guys want to do. And I, I know this book much less well than that one. But one of the things that occurred to me about this book is this Cyrus, insofar as Jeff says, Xenophon does not specify Cyrus the Younger, Cyrus the Elder, Cyrus the Great, because Cyrus is a type, a, a typology. It's a category. And in a way, my sense is it's the typology of Cyrus is the highest political life, that that's Cyrus, whether it's the great, whether it's the younger, Cyrus is a stand-in for the typology of the most, um, uh, of the maximized political man. Mm -hmm. And this Cyrus, like the old Cyrus, um, seems to want to reorder the world or to put the world in a certain kind of order. Um, and has certain longings for justice that, that the old Cyrus seems to have had. And so that there's some common ground. One thing that occurs to me uh, right off the bat about this Cyrus is he seems to want to know things that no one else knows. Or he, for example, he doesn't tell anyone the purpose of the expedition. He, he, it's like he knows what the world, what the events of the world hold, but but no one else knows what those events might be. And this is, um, in a way, an ascent to uh, divinity or to godhood. Uh, and, he, and this goes along with his desire to order the world justly to reward those who, who are loyal to him, uh, et cetera. Although I would also say about this Cyrus, he seems to have certain shortcomings that the previous one did not have. But just as a kind of stab uh, at, at what ascent might mean, it's some kind of knowledge or some kind of um, position as a ordering divinity. It seems like Xenophon is equal. I mean, is the person that it, Cyrus is getting over on uh, Xenophon? You know, like is, should we kind of believe Xenophon and his praise for him as much as uh, he lays it out? Like in, in nine, 28 and 29 there's this line uh, and if ever he were passing where large numbers were going to see him he would call his friends over and engage them in earnest conversation in order to show whom he honored thus from what i hear i at least judge that no one greek or barbarian has come to be loved by more and this is the same as book one in the education of cyrus where you know xenophon kind of talks about how you know, everybody pretty much um, wants to be free, but that somehow Cyrus could command, you know, the other Cyrus, the same Cyrus, the Cyruses, the Cyrus I um, could somehow get over on people and was loved by people. But then he says in 29, a sign of this is as follows. Although he was a slave, no one deserted from Cyrus to join the king, except that Orontes attempted it. And that's, that's like technically true but, you know, in, in chapter one of book one, we see Tissaphernes going with uh, Cyrus to see Artaxerxes and the, then their father. And Tissaphernes tells Artaxerxes, hey, this guy's going to try to steal the throne from you. 
uh, along the march to uh, to Babylon, um, Xenius and Passion, who just they just take off with their armies, and these are kind of armies that Cyrus got together through less than forthright circumstances, and then Cyrus kind of lies, obfuscates, doesn't necessarily tell the whole truth to his army until like chapter four. It's like, yeah, we are going to attack the king. You know, he says, oh, we're going to go put down renegades or fight these little proxy wars. So I don't know if Xenophon's kind of description here of he, no one's no one's come to be loved by more people. And what he's kind of implying, he says specifically, nobody left to join the king. Okay. But it's not like nobody left. So, you know, there's a lot of people, not a lot, but a decent chunk of the people that he's gathered around him are like betrayed him or just took off. So I, I just bring that up to, to ask myself that question, ask you guys that question. Is, is Xenophon the one being seduced? Um, is, is, is Xenophon the one that's um, raising up Cyrus, causing this ascent? Um, and so should we approach it maybe with a little bit of that knowledge that maybe Xenophon is getting a little bit seduced by Cyrus? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me to raise the question that you did here and in exactly the way that you did it. And I guess the only thing I'd want to add to the way you formulated it is um, that Xenophon is both providing the evidence that Cyrus could be seductive for someone like him, and he's providing the evidence that leads us to see some limits to that seduction or start to have doubts about that seduction, right? So that line that you read from 28, I at least judge that no one Greek or barbarian has come to be loved by more. The gods might be a category that you would wonder about in the context there because Greek and barbarian looks like it might be comprehensive for human beings, right? So you might say, well, Cyrus, this Cyrus is loved as much as it's possible for a human being to be loved, but maybe not as much as a god is loved, right? Evidence, well, nobody revolted against him. Oh, well, maybe one guy, maybe a couple more guys, right? Like you just start to wonder, well, if there was one, how many were there really, right? And then by the way, you wanna say, well, how did Cyrus deal with that uh, betrayal and it's very interesting how he deals with it right so I think yeah we're we're put on the um, we're put on a kind of twin track here by Xenophon one is we get this really beautiful picture and, and you just say to yourself wow uh, Xenophon seems to be quite impressed by this human being this is the maximum human being as Shiloh was suggesting on the other hand Xenophon is not so impressed that he doesn't have some things that are apparently bothering him about this guy yeah. I wonder if a way into that would be if we bracket the obituary, because as we said, Cyrus does die. And we now, as Brian has pointed out, we see that there's this tremendous admiration, apparently, um, toward the end that's mixed with the occasional uh, shred of doubt. But I, I wonder if we could, if you guys have any particular deeds of Cyrus that you would want to examine. He seems a little bit, to me, um, less per, less perfect in the Machiavellian sense than than the other Cyrus that we've read about. He he sometimes makes missteps or sometimes even I think, I don't know, Cyrus, that doesn't seem your intentions uh, don't line up with your actions or your, you know, your your ends don't seem to fit the means you're pursuing at this particular moment. 
Um, and so I wonder if we could look at some of the things that he says or some of the things that he does um, that bring out the kind of character he is both in the depths of his, his, his excellence um, and also maybe some places where Xenophon might quietly call into question um, his judgment. And whether we want to talk about the beginning, Brian already touched on Tissaphernes and the kind of crime that's been committed to Cyrus such that he feels a bit spurned to attack his brother, the nature of that crime, is, has he really been spurned? Um, that might be an interesting place to start as well as um, you know, his dealings with the, with the, um, with the Greeks uh, and, and those who betray him. But are there any, is there a place that you guys want to look at in particular? It makes some sense to me to go in order. Um, so we could look back at where Brian was directing us to book one, chapter one, um, and just ask this question, uh, who started Cyrus's ascent? Where does it begin? Um, how far back does the ascent go would be another way of saying that. Um, it looks like uh, we get told that there are two sons, right? Artaxerxes and Cyrus, right? Artaxerxes is the elder. And then we're told that the father Darius falls sick, right? D does that start the ascent of Cyrus? Is that enough? You mean the sickness or being younger? Yeah, the, the sickness. Well, yeah, let's let's look at both of those. Maybe because you're right. I've already given two pieces of information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What what do the two things mean to you? Well, depending on the kind of nature he has, um, it seems to me that that um, the two things present um, an op an opportunity to display his excellence uh, in the face of perhaps a certain sort of resentment, and that's already enough. I mean, the, the Tissaphernes thing is a, could conceivably be just a convenient pretext, in other words, for longings that he harbored based on the um, situation into which he was born and over which he had no control, both being younger uh, and then having a dying father. Yeah, so is, is it a hidden premise in there that um, there are two sons, but only one of them can be king? Right. Nobody's yeah. thinking the kingship's going to be split. Right. And so it's going to be the elder one. Right. Right. But what if the elder one isn't the better one? Yeah. Right. And there's some suggestions that, you know, Cyrus's mother likes him better. Right. Than his elder brother. Right. Um, so, yeah, does, is that enough? And, and what does that tell us then about the justice of this beginning? Right. Is Cyrus the wronged party? I mean, it doesn't seem like he's the wrong party. And <sighs> I'm trying to, I've been working on this quote to figure out who said it for like the last five minutes, but um, it's, I'm vaguely pulling, I, you know, I can just pull like Eisenhower or Patton out because I'm pretty sure it's World War II and those guys are the most quotable in terms of Americans. But, yeah. you know, the, the number one thing that I look for in a commander is being lucky. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't seem like Cyrus is that lucky. <laughs> So, you know, we're in the situation where whether or not he's planning this from the from the get go or not, um, you know, his counterintelligence tradecraft is pretty bad because he got, you know, Tissaphernes teams up with Tissaphernes and Tissaphernes either a rats him out or B uh, is so untrustworthy that he sees an opportunity to get in with Cyrus's brother Um so then, you know, bad, bad decision on who you hang out with either way. Then 
you know, he goes through all these kind of machinations. And, and you could argue, I think, Machiavellian machinations of, oh, no, I'm just going to get some troops to fight these guys and I'm going to get some other troops to fight these guys. And then I'm going to just happen to start, you know, going towards the, the king and, um, you know, Artaxerxes. And it doesn't seem like Artaxerxes is too surprised. You know, and I, I'm jumping around here a little bit so we can come back. But, you know, it's very Xenophon's very specific. And he says that Cyrus, and I think it's around book four, where Cyrus is trying to get there as quick as possible because Artaxerxes forces are spread out. And so he sees speed as his advantage. And then he shows up and he's got he's outnumbered like three to one, four to one or something like that. Ten to one. Ten to one. OK, yeah. um, so he hasn't done a great job of speed. Uh but then he does okay. Like there, at least the Greeks do okay. And even huh. Cyrus does okay, but it just gets some bad luck and he gets schwacked. Yeah. So if you're looking for indications of, you know, is he the uh, more excellent human here? I don't know if I have some evidence aside from what reads to me in, in kind of chapter nine, like a really good HR statement. Uh, that was kind of my impression of chapter nine, where Xenophon uh -huh. writes down all the great things about being part of Cyrus Company. You know, Cyrus Incorporated. Here's the things you can look forward to as part of Cyrus Incorporated. <laughs> um, and, but, it, you know, the dude loses and he dies. Yeah. <laughs> and he kind of brings it upon himself because he didn't, he had a nice little coastal kingdom. He's just kicking it there on the coast of Anatolia. Like life's good, working on his tan, you know, collecting taxes. And now he's just got to like go try to overthrow his brother and fails. Yeah. So I feel like I'm being like, this is almost good because this will set up like we can do some kind of uh, faux WWE Smackdown stuff where like me and Shiloh like fight on the pod. Yeah. Uh, where I'm like, he's team Cyrus and I'm not team Cyrus. Um, but I do, I do have some questions as to like this, you know, most excellent human. I do too. Feeling. Yeah. I do yeah. too. No, I, I, I like this approach a great deal because I think this is uh, the thought process that Xenophon wants us to have, right? That it's a kind of back and forth, right? You get the praise of Cyrus, you get these signs that he looks like he might be unlucky or hapless in a lot of ways. And then I think there's a third step. Um, let me just make uh, one suggestion regarding the very beginning, right? So the haplessness of choosing Tissaphernes as a friend, right? That's what we get told. Um, it seems not just unlucky, right? That he chose a guy that turned out to be untrustworthy, right? It seems positively stupid because we learn um, later in chapter one that he had been warring with Tissaphernes before he took him as a friend, right? So he took this guy that he had wronged and said, hey, let's be buds and let's go up to um, Artaxerxes to the brother and, uh, you know, check in with him, right? And uh, surprise, surprise, Tissaphernes uh, betrays him. So let me make this suggestion. Cyrus wanted to be betrayed. Yeah. He engineered the situation so that Tissaphernes would betray him because there were only two possibilities. He was going to fight with his brother and he was going to be in the wrong, or he was going to fight with his brother and his brother was going to be in the wrong. And he engineered the second possibility, justice would be on his side, right? So the haplessness was, um, he took a, a acceptable hit for the sake of later advantage. How, how does that sound so far? 
Yeah, it sounds good. It, it also brings out a slight bit of hypocrisy because he, on the one hand, he wants to be on the side of justice, yet the very first line indicates that he's committing an injustice in, you know, because he's the younger. And so I, I have this in mind. He, he's frustrated with what's lawful. Um, what's lawful is that his brother get the throne. Uh, what's natural or fitting you may have read the education. What's fitting is that he get the throne because he's more excellent. And so what he's trying to do is say the lawful in this case has made a mistake. What's fitting is me. Um, and so then he adopts or does all of these apparently, uh, you know, secret things so that justice is on his side, but only justice understood as the fitting because at every sense justice understood as the lawful is, has been thrown out the window from the get go. And so there's this tremendous um, contradiction in the kind of justice he seeks. Um, right. But it seems your, your suggestion that he engineered this seems perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly fitting to me, given his frustrations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, there's a risk in the engineering, right? This, this is a kind of brave bravery on his part because it looks like only with the intervention of his mother does he get away. Um, in that first uh, run-in with his brother. But you can take calculated risks in the thought that it's gonna pay off a lot later. Um, and it, it looks like it does pay off for him uh, fairly well. Also, um, his brother is never under any illusion that um, Cyrus is coming for him, right? And the, the deception of, of scattering these troops around and then gathering them together does not last very long at all. They, they, um, the king, uh, now his brother, almost immediately realizes that this force cannot be coming for the, the Pisians, the, the people who are the pretext and the supposed goal, right? So um, I think deceiving his brother is not high on his list other than uh, the beginning. It's deceiving other people that's more important to him. Which he does a really great job of. Uh, like even keeping the amount of troops that he is keeping throughout book one is, is pretty impressive. And, and Xenophon highlights that, right? He gets, some people sneak away, but when we have the, the kind of little, I mean, it, it seems little, but it's not, right? It is, uh, I want to say this is in book four, two, where Clearchus is uh, like almost gets into a fight because he walks by uh, the other group of soldiers. Um, or no, it's five. Mm -hmm. Five eleven, yeah. Here, Menon's soldiers and those of Clearchus fell into a dispute over something. Clearchus decided that a soldier of Menon's was unjust and beat him, and he returned to his own army and spoke about it. When the soldiers heard, they became harsh and severely angry with Clearchus, right? So this kind of comes back to one of the first things you kind of learn as a Marine officer. Um, it's like three points. One, I'm Mr. Jones, I'm here to paint, which basically means like, you know, you show up with your paintbrushes, but you'll do whatever you need to do to get the job done. Uh, two, uh, give them a piece of the rock, which is like, make everybody feel like they're part of something. And three is don't mess with my puppies. <laughs> like, like I can roll the newspaper up and smack my puppies on the nose, but if anybody else does it, I'm gonna mess you up. Right. And so we're in this situation where Clericus makes a 
mistake by punishing Minan soldiers. But even in that, and it's like, I mean, it's, they bring it up, you know, in basic officers course for a reason, because it's very important that you don't trespass on these, you know, kind of commandments of leadership and Clericus, who's a general does that, but Cyrus manages to kind of chill things out. He does so by basically saying like, if we fight right now, we're all going to get slaughtered, but he still manages to, kind of chill things out and the army continues to march right so he's doing some things right he's 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 figuring out what the hot spots of the people around him are and using those for his advantage um so anyway i just wanted to throw that out there as the point we're talking about and that he is maneuvering in some ways and managing people in some ways that is working uh even if the end result doesn't turn out the way he'd like yeah, that's a great example. I'm glad you've drawn our attention to that also because it might um, open up the side of Cyrus um, that we're not so impressed by if we look at the details a little more closely. Um, one of the things which, which I find impressive in a kind of confession is that um, in 16, um, so the very end of chapter five, um, Cyrus just fesses up that if the Greeks fight among themselves, uh, I take it that... Uh, their barbarian allies will cut them to pieces, right? So it's not just that they'll lose at the hands of the king when they eventually encounter him, which would probably be true if you degraded your forces and you're already at a 10 to one disadvantage, but they're gonna destroy the confidence of this rebellious force um, if you start fighting one another, right? So much depends on the Greek unity and the Greek uh, support of this effort that if you undermine that, you're gonna end up dead at the hands of your, your ostensible allies, right? But the other thing I'll point out that um, gives me some pause here, look at what Cyrus says. This is right in 16. Clearchus and Proxenus and other Greeks who are present, you do not know what you are doing. Well, Clearchus, as Brian pointed out for really good reasons, has made a mistake, right? And he doesn't know what he's doing, right? Or at least there's some criticism that could be made of, of him. He's, he's started a fight. Proxenus was trying to stop the fight. It was Mino who was the other party. Now, I see a couple possibilities. Uh, Cyrus comes up and sees the situation and he does not know whose fault it is and he's not gonna find out, right? He's just gonna rebuke them all equally. That I think seems to me like, like an error. Possibility two, Cyrus comes up and he sees the situation and he knows that it's Mino's fault partly and Clearchus's fault partly. And he blames Proxenus instead of Mino because in the previous chapter, Mino made this um, particular gesture with his troops that Cyrus seems to have appreciated. In either case, Cyrus doesn't quite get the praise and blame right, right? Isn't, isn't that a problem from a leadership perspective equivalent to Clearchus's um, problem of punishing uh, somebody else's soldiers, right? This, this is a chink in the armor, isn't it? Well, yeah. not necessarily. Oh, go ahead, Charles. No, no, I was just gonna say it's a problem for his ascent in a way because he's not, he's, I mean, on the one, I don't know. I, I guess it depends if you think this is prudent dealing or if this is, uh, Jeff, are you implying this is some kind of mistake on Cyrus's part? I was thinking a mistake, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and th this would be in some ways a criticism of the grand ascent that he longs for, which is, as I pointed out at the beginning, could be a kind of ascent to something superhuman, um, that he's unable to order human affairs as perfectly as he thought he might be able to because human affairs don't give themselves over to that kind of order, um, or at least it might not be compatible with your ambition or your grand, your grand intention. But Brian, you, you, you disagree with this, so please. Well, I'm not, I don't know if I necessarily disagree, but I, I will bring us back to a point that you were kind of making earlier, Shiloh, when you talked about what is fitting versus what is lawful, which takes us back to the, the parable of the coat from the education of Cyrus. Um, and so if we go with, with COA 2, right, that, that Jeff mentioned, that, um, that Cyrus knew who, who was you know, doing what, but blamed Proxenus uh, versus Mino because Mino, you know, was the first one to cross. Then he is trying to reward what is fitting, which is serving him, you know, uh, serving him with enthusiasm, demonstrating initiative, all those things. And so um, we'll turn we'll turn a blind eye to people that make mistakes. Um, or, or cause issues if at the end of the day, they're going to cross the river with them because that's, that's what he wants. And this kind of goes back to another uh, little aphorism that, that I kind of created, which is uh, rules are for assholes. Um, that if you're, if you're in charge of something, um, you, have, you have rules um, and then enforcing them is kind of up to you. Uh, they're mostly there for assholes who uh, are breaking the rules and potentially harming the greater good. But um, if they just do it accidentally and they're not assholes, then you can just turn, turn the, like, just pretend you didn't see it, you know? And so if you're, you know, if your best Marine, uh, you know, happens to, you know, get a little bit too drunk at a like Christmas party, then, you know, you just kind of turn to one of your corporals and there's like, get them out of here. But if one of your worst Marines gets drunk at a Christmas party and you want to get rid of him, then that's a great time to <laughs> drop some punishment on him. So he's out of your way. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of room to maneuver in there, but I'm, I'm still open to, to what you guys were saying is that this was a mistake. But if you're talking about battlefield effectiveness and which leaders that you want to uh, continue to appreciate and demonstrate your um, demonstrate their or reward their willingness to follow you, which you know Xenophon makes a big deal of in, in chapter nine, um, then maybe he's doing this rules are for assholes aphorism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, that's helpful because it does open up a possibility that I hadn't really considered thoroughly enough, which is. Um, you could say Cyrus is very devoted to um, making other human beings useful to him, right? And the question is, well, what makes them useful to him, right? On the one hand, it looks like Mino's initiative, for example, the, the story is who first crosses the, the river and makes it clear that the Greeks are gonna go along with Cyrus to assault the great king in Babylon. And Mino's troops turn out to be the ones who go first, uh, even though the whole army had, uh, was willing to go. Um, you know, it, it might be useful, very useful to Cyrus to have um, military leaders like that around, right? Um, but it's also useful to Cyrus to have his, um, his army hold together. And Clearchus 
arguably was um, working in service of that. And um, so it could, it could be not that uh, we have a kind of uh, lawfulness versus fitting situation here. And I, I think I agree, he's uh, left lawfulness behind a long time ago. He wouldn't be uh, interested in rules, but maybe he's kind of confused about what's really fitting for his soldiers, right? Is it, is it simply good for them that they be useful to him or is, do they have their own good that he has to attend to, uh, that they trust and respect one another and that they hold together? So that might be another another way of framing the problem, and it's a possibility that hadn't occurred to me that your example brings up. Um, maybe just to add one thing, it fits together a little bit with uh, this um, kind of confusing thing in the speech that Cyrus gives to the Greeks in order to persuade them to, to cross into Babylon, where he says on the one hand, you guys are free, you've got the greatest good, I would choose that, Right, if I could, um, that's what makes you such great soldiers. You know, you're going to just crush the the barbarians, my own people. And on the other hand, he says something like, "When we're done, I'm going to give you so much stuff, you'll never go home back to Greece." Right. <laughs> so you know, you you can give up on this Greek life of freedom that's made you such a great soldier to stick with me. Right. Well, which is the better thing for these Greek mercenaries? Right. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's not so clear to him. Um, what really benefits his soldiers. Can I ask, because I I, um, I don't know, is this the same Tissaphernes from uh, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War? Do we have a new uh, Tissaphernes as well? I, I think it could be. I don't know the answer to that, but the timing is right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's just, that's, that's just interesting. And it, it also gives you know, a very interesting kind of backdrop to this whole thing that, you know, the Greeks um, have just fought this prolonged war for 50 years, you know, between the Athenians and the Spartans. And what you often see after, you know, prolonged wars is very ready, willing and able mercenary forces mm -hmm. kind of looking for stuff to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, just wanted to I wanted to see if that was the same Tissaphernes so that we could at least have that in the backdrop in terms of some of the character motivation in this. Well, so when it, we when we produce the movie, like we've got you know some flashback stories that we can throw in from the Athens Sparta War. Sign the right casting deal, right? Get the same yeah, yeah, actor we gotta, so we, we don't work confuse anyone. <laughs> no, sure, but yeah. your your observation is really helpful for this. Um, a, cu a couple of details like this. You'll you'll read in I guess it's chapter eight that when the Greeks fight, they shout. Uh, they sing the song that the Spartans sing and they cry out to the God that the Spartans cry out to. So there are a lot of Lacedaemonians or Spartans, Lacedaemonians more generally, right? Um, in this mercenary force, um, Xenophon's an Athenian. He might feel like a, a little bit of the odd man out uh, in this mercenary force, but there's also uh, triremes that come from Sparta uh, for some mysterious reason to support Cyrus. So yeah, there's another conflict, I think that's still ongoing in the background and that is having effects on this conflict. Jeff, when you, when you said a moment ago that, um, that Cyrus both envies the Greeks their freedom and yet offers them possessions which would lead to their enslavement, the implication there is that, um, I mean, is, is, is the implication that he, he's, his position is incoherent with respect to his own ends? Or, or would you say he's aware of the fact that he 
is offering them possessions and therefore slowly enslaving them. I ask this because I don't think our Cyrus from last time, well, I saw the same symptom that, I mean, it's just everywhere in the, in the last Cyrus is, so I'll give you guys things and then we'll get there and we'll be virtuous and free. And so I'm curious whether you see this Cyrus as, as, as a knower of the contradiction or as someone who, um, who's unaware and therefore this is a mark against him. Well, uh, I'll answer the simple thing first and then the complicated thing. This, these are my guesses. Um, I don't think he genuinely envies the Greeks, their freedom. Um, whereas I do think that the Cyrus the Great, having originated in Persian virtue, um, had maybe more attachment to that um, than this Cyrus has. But as for how well he sees the contradiction, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think he doesn't see it. And, and here's a piece of evidence. We'll go back to Clearchus, who is the um, chief general, although not the only general of the Greeks. Um, and, and here I'd also like some, some military insight because I'm a little puzzled about what's going on. But um, at a decisive moment um, when uh, Cyrus's army has been confronted by um, uh, the king's army, uh, Cyrus orders Clearchus, who has the um, right flank, I guess, he's up against the Euphrates River, to basically cut across Cyrus's whole army in order to hit where the Persian king is at the center of the opposing forces. And Clearchus doesn't do it, right? Um, I, I think um, Cyrus does not know when he has a handle on his people. And that's partly because he doesn't really understand those things that um, are, are fitting or useful for the soldiers and those things that are fitting or useful for him. And he doesn't understand the difference. And I trace that moment all the way back to mistaking um, uh, Clearchus's utility and maybe treating, treating him badly in this episode. I, I, think, that, I, I think that's a good a really good point to highlight the inconsistency of of Cyrus maybe is what we would call it because when he when he pitches the the Greeks and says well you can go home and be free men or you can come and have everything you want and stay here like that's a very kind of common uh negotiation and sales <laughs> you know kind of tactic of um you know compliment you know, demonstrate approval, like, oh, you're free men, you make up your own minds. I'm, you know, I'm just a dumb Persian, like, you know, the Greeks, you guys are so, so intelligent, so smart. Uh, by the way, you can have everything you want if you follow me. Right. Um, and so like you, you make it seem like they're making their own, you know, a free decision and that they're intelligent and that there's no chance you're trying to manipulate them at all because they would see right through that. By the way, you can have all this stuff if you stick with me. Um, so that's like, you know, I, I thought that was very well, um, well handled by, by Cyrus to, to pitch it that way. But you bring up this point where he's seemingly t making a very bad, like operational decision, telling his right flank to cross all the way across the army to attack the, the center in a with a commander that he has already rubbed the wrong way and doesn't have great rapport with after this Clearchus Mino Proxenus situation um, and doesn't know that he's going to not do it. 
Mm-hmm. So you see this, you know, potential inconsistency uh, right out of the gate with how Cyrus is managing his people. But again, you get this, you know, Cyrus incorporated HR policy in, in chapter nine that just talks about how great he is. So I think that's really the, the thing that, you know, uh, the first couple chapters, I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I get this, I get this, I get this. And then nine seemed like he was just, you know, taking stuff from education to Cyrus and putting it in here. Mm-hmm. And I was just going, I don't know if I see this, you know, I don't know if I see the, the same thing that Xenophon is seeing. Mm-hmm. So, um, for, I mean, for, so from a military perspective and from, from that, like, I think that it's, you know, number one, he lost mm-hmm. <laughs> number two, the guy didn't obey his orders. So for militarily speaking, like didn't do a great job there. Um, but I think overall looking at the whole thing, I'm just very, like when I got to nine, I started being just very on guard as to what Xenophon was telling me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the right way to be, right? If this is the kind of book that encourages you to say, hey, wait a minute, let me go back and really study what happened because I don't think I agree with that judgment at all. It's, it's serving its purpose, right? It's not just downloading information or opinions into us. It's making us work for it um, and get all the details. Um, and speaking of which, is it is it okay? Our time is getting short. Do you want to just jump to the end? Brian's referred to it a couple times. The guy dies. The ascent. Can we do one more thing? Oh yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I, I, I don't know if it's going to be important and hmm. I, I can't even remember the woman's name, but a woman comes and Cyrus has intercourse with her. It's said that Cyrus has it's intercourse with her. It's said that Cyrus has intercourse with her. And yeah. anytime, as you know, from the education of Cyrus, there's a woman and there's erotic. I, I'm, I'm curious, what is Xenophon doing? Because I, I think it'll, it's probably big. And so I'm, I'm trying, I don't know if there's anything else to say about it other than what we've just said, but I'm just curious what was made of that. This is a very different uh, presentation of a Cyrus. If Cyrus uh, of this book and the last book is a universal political type, this Cyrus is is apparently having intercourse with women who are right. who are the wives of kings. Right. Like and and then showing him his 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 army and mm-hmm. scaring her to death and all this and I thought well this is very this is a wrinkle um, if if we can make any sense of it real quick yeah I've got a couple a couple thoughts see what you guys think of these but it it's hard I I don't think I have it all figured out um, not only do we have this rumor that Cyrus has intercourse with this uh, queen it's it's uh, the queen of a territory that he's got to pass through. And if possible, pass through without losing soldiers, right? So pass through without fighting if possible, right? And it turns out he does that. Um, not only is there that rumor, but uh, when the, um, the, the Greek and barbarian Cyrus's baggage train is overrun by the king's forces, it turns out there are two more women there. Um, what, it looks like Cyrus has a harem. Right, and unlike the uh, the rumor about this one woman, uh, the, these are apparently, I mean, they're real women. They're they're present. They're not rumors. They're there for Cyrus. They were Cyrus's, right? One flees to the Greeks. I think the uh, the other one's taken. Um, yeah. So why is this Cyrus willing to um, occupy himself with erotic matters, whereas the first Cyrus? was not even willing to go and gaze on a woman who is said to be surpassingly beautiful. Um, I, I don't have much of a read on this other than to say that it does seem to me to indicate a, a less um, focused soul than Cyrus the Great. 
Um, but I will say that the rumor agrees with um, what Cyrus seems to be able to pull off with the king whose wife he spends time with. He manages to get that king to give up a really advantageous military position that would have cost Cyrus dearly to overrun by force in favor of just abandoning his kingdom, right? So there's a kind of seduction here um, that is entirely consistent with the rumor that he somehow um, seduced and slept with this, uh, this king's wife. I, I wonder, you know, when I read that, um, where, where is that again? Because I, I, I'm trying to find the note that I wrote next to it, and I'm not seeing that either. Because I, I remember writing, oh, here it is. I got it. Got it? Um, yeah, because I wrote the note. It's book one, chapter two, at 12. Uh, the Cilician queen had a bodyguard of Cilicians and Aspendians, and it was said that Cyrus had intercourse with the Cilician uh, queen. And I wrote, uh, reference Alcibiades and the queen of Sparta. Hmm. And so there's the same, and I, don't, I forget which text this is from, but I was doing a Thucydides seminar recently and somebody brought that. It's not in Thucydides, but somebody brought up that like supposedly Alcibiades slept with the queen of Sparta and actually impregnated her because he wanted like his progeny to be the king of Sparta. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just like, you did what? <laughs> you, you did what? <laughs> um, and so I wondered how much Xenophon's readers would be familiar with that story. Right. That Alcibiades slept with a Spartan queen and that we're trying to at least sprinkle a little bit of, um, hey, this is similar to an Alcibiades character here with somebody that will do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that that could be what this is doing. Um, I guess I'm still inclined to stress that this is a rumor from Xenophon's perspective. And so it's uh, whatever point he's trying to make is not contingent on it being true. Right. That he slept with the queen. Um, also, you know, the queen is um, one of the, she provides money to Cyrus's troops, which he needs, right, to pay the Greek, Greeks off to keep them with him. Uh, she's also the audience for his display of how the Greeks can terrify barbarians. Right. Right. Which she then, he, then he sends her back to her husband. Right. Which I think he wouldn't do if he were primarily sexually interested in her, by the way. Right. Yeah. Um, I take it to communicate the uh, abject terror that she felt seeing those Greeks coming toward her and presumably what the uselessness of her bodyguards, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. So yeah, this is psychological warfare of a, of a very high level, I'd say, right? Um, this for me is part of what impresses about this Cyrus, even though it yeah. might also indicate a limitation. Well, the harem thing, I hadn't really seen that. that that's a real puzzle right there. I mean, yeah. um, on the one hand, it indicates that this Cyrus's desires are satisfied in a, in a way that the other, that the greater Cyrus's desires are not. And therefore that this Cyrus is of less ambition, you know, you know, it kind of lowers the, um, lowers the aim of the arrow a bit. He, he can be satisfied by these pleasures, whereas the other Cyrus, it just simply wasn't even a question. I just, but there, and there's gotta be something else here, and this is gonna sound weird, but there's gotta be something else here about the religious longing. Anywhere you see Eros, you should also think about religion. And I know that sounds weird and I'm not gonna defend it, but um, <laughs> there's also something else about these religious longings that I suspect Xenophon's trying to say, or his longings to be a God, um, his longings for gods. Uh, 
um, to be a beloved, to be a lover, uh, but I can't make any sense of it. And because this is, I haven't read the book in years. So maybe we can just keep this in our back pockets as we go forward. Cause this theme is really interesting to me. And Xenophon doesn't mention these uh, love matters by chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suspect just to add one detail to, to what you've pointed out, the, um, remark of Xenophon is that the Phocaean woman, one of the two women who are in the camp and apparently belong to Cyrus's, she's, uh, she's said to be Cyrus's concubine. And he remarks that she was said to be wise and beautiful. Yeah. Um, and maybe there, first, it seems like Xenophon didn't make any effort to verify this, right? He's content with the hearsay. <laughs> and uh, second, that um, maybe people couldn't explain to themselves why Cyrus had a woman with him, unless she was either surpassingly wiser or surpassingly beautiful, right? In other words, there's some popular puzzlement at this too in him among the soldiers, right? Um, those who don't get to see firsthand. So that's, that's just a thought. Um, Xenophon, I think, makes a lot of this distinction between things he sees for himself and things that are hearsay. Um, and the other one, I, I, since we're bringing up kind of rumors and what is what is obscure, I'll, I know we're trying to get to his death, yeah. so I'll be fast. Um, but Arantes' execution. Oh, yeah. Xenophon makes it very clear that nobody saw him killed and nobody saw his body. So it's, 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 it is a rumor that he was executed. There there's, appears to be no evidence of it that Cyrus commanded it, but then for some reason, and especially in nine again, where we, where, he, where Xenophon talks about like all the, all the ne'er-do-wells whose uh, arms he would chop off and, and, you know, heads he would chop off and put, a, put along the road. So everyone could see that if you were unjust, that you would be punished. And yet Orontes just, who is, you know, a traitor, uh, nobody ever sees his body. Brian, that's great. That hadn't occurred to me either. I just love that juxtaposition, right? So yeah, let me frame it in this way. I'll throw it back at you guys because I don't have an answer for it. Yeah, why? So yeah, right. Public punishment, right? As evidence, and, and it, it said that um, uh, now you can travel safely, right? Throughout his territories because there's this public evidence that justice is done, right? Why can't he execute Orantes publicly? Why does he have to disappear him? Well, I also think there's a little bit of, if I, if you were traveling a road and saw a bunch of bodies chopped up hanging, you know, along the road, I don't know how safe I would feel necessarily. Um, yeah. It's but, also magical. Yeah. It's magical. Like yeah. it's, he made him vanish. He just yeah. vanished like that. That's a, that's like what a God does. Like, goodbye, snap your fingers, yeah. evaporated. I, I don't know. I mean, it, I don't know what to make of the spectacle of the thing, I guess. Yeah, it cuts both ways for me, right? On the one hand, yeah, I can't argue with that, right? Somebody disappears and nobody knows what's become of him, right? That is, I think, very characteristic of the intervention of a God. On the other hand, you remember Orantes gets um, obeisance even from even after he's been condemned to death from those close to him, right? He's a Persian of very high standing. Maybe it would be too much of a risk for Cyrus to bend him over in front of everybody and chop off his head, right? Like maybe that was just too far. And so in that case, the disappearing 
you know, would have exactly the opposite significance. I don't know exactly how to do this, but it would be evidence that um, he's not quite a god, right? That he can't pull this off without endangering himself too much. Sure, but in the, in the immortal words of Machiavelli, it left the people satisfied and stupefied. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I wonder if that wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we do we want to try to tackle his death? Do we want to open with the death of Cyrus in uh, in our next pod? What do you guys want to do? Well, let's let's say a brief word about it because it does really okay. close out the book, um, and there'll be a lot to talk about in book two. I mean, there's just so much in this great book. So, so Brian, let me put it on you. Uh, Cyrus didn't wear a helmet. Yeah, is he Come an on. idiot? <laughs> Even the horses wear helmets. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> So I think that that is, you know, that that's one of those things that makes the word hubris make sense to me Yeah, because I can relate to it so much, both as a young Marine officer. Um, you know, the first time you put like deuce gear and a helmet and a flak on and have to march. Oh my God, it's miserable. Like it's cool for five minutes and then everything hurts. Um, and you'll just do anything you can to get out of it. And, you know, the, the soldiers load mobility of a nation kind of stuff, SLA Marshall and how they load, load people down um, with stuff and with protective gear. And so by the time I got to rock and I'm wearing, you know, flak and Kevlar and there's all these hanging pieces and it's, and all you want to do is take that stuff off. And here's what happens. You see the SF guys, who are wearing beanie caps, you know, out in the field and have the super tiny, you know, sap plate thing on that's like really small and really lightweight. And they're not, there's no protective gear on at all. And you're just like, oh my God, I, I would love to do that. But then you're in charge and all your Marines have to wear that protective gear. And so you got to wear it too. Yeah. And if you see one of your, you know, Marine Lance corporals, even in a relatively safe environment, even if they're not, nobody's shooting you at the moment, like take their helmet off. You got to jump down their throat and like get on them to keep that stuff on. And so, you know, it, it, it's that hubris of like, I'm a God. Yeah. I'm a mortal. Nothing's going to hurt me. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to wear this stuff. And you want to be that person. You want to, you want to hang out with the SF guys and grow your beard and, you know, put your hands in your pockets. Um, and so I wonder if it was a lot, a little bit of that, that this kind of striation, uh, this hierarchy um, and, and the rules don't apply to me. The law doesn't apply to me of, I need to wear my, I need to wear my helmet. I need to wear my Kevlar um, because I'm better than that. I, mm -hmm. I do what I do, what's fitting. And what's fitting to me is, you know, not having to wear that stuff. And so it's not surprising. So I wonder if that's a little bit of a commentary on the fit versus the lawful. I mean, Xenophon was a, he was a soldier. Mm -hmm. So he kind of knows this stuff. He knows it implicitly. He has this stuff on like all the time and, and suffers with it and lives with it. And that's what you have to do as a leader is you got to suffer the same stuff as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. But if you think you're a God, then you mm -hmm. don't think you have to suffer like that. And you don't think anything bad's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess the only thing I add to that, which seems uh, like a bullseye on explaining what went wrong here is um, the thing I think that persuaded Cyrus that he might be a god or started to persuade him enough to forego the helmet was that 
he seemed not to have to fight anybody to get to this point. And he might even have been hoping that he wouldn't have to fight his brother, right? These inexplicable abandonings of really strong strategic positions happen over and over again in his um, march, in his ascent. And it looks like he wins those battles by, um, by freaking out his opponents, right? By psychological warfare. And maybe he thinks that this could happen to his brother too. Uh, but he's wrong about that. He's, he's careless the morning that the battle actually happens. And, uh, you know, he's much more vulnerable as a result and uh, a foreseeable accident does him in. What do you think, Shiloh? Is that is that good on the helmet issue, at least? Yeah, I mean, you know, that seems good to me. I mean, obviously, he thought he was. Um, I mean, he thought. I, I suspect he thinks he's immortal, or he mm -hmm. mistakes himself for for someone who's immortal. You know, the Revolutionary soldiers in the Revolutionary War in America used to say that the bullets would come at Washington, stop, and turn back. Mm -hmm. You know, that there was something, or they would just veer around him, and they witnessed it. They witnessed, you know. And I don't know that that's real. And Cyrus, I suspect, learned the lesson that um, your men can make myths about you. But if one comes your way, you know, it comes your way. And uh, I, I don't it's unclear to me that he thought that uh, that this was a real possibility. I mean, the other imprudent thing he does in a certain sense is he goes for the center, mm -hmm. uh, which is the most dangerous location. And, and it just goes without saying the, the Cyrus the Great would never ta tactically would never do anything of this sort. Um, so what we're supposed to make of that, I can't say. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners to our uh, education of Cyrus pods will remember a guy named Aberdatus who Cyrus the Great sent against the center and who ended up in pieces. Right. That's how Cyrus the Great handles the center. Send somebody else. <laughs> Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Uh, I'm excited to tackle the rest of the book with you guys, listeners. I hope you're excited to hear us take that on. Uh, if you're just jumping in, then again, we've got the uh, Education of Cyrus series of pods that we did a little while back. And uh, you can also listen to our Iliad series that we're doing at the same time as this. So uh, thanks Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Thank you, dear listeners. Uh, check us out on the gram. Check us out on the socials uh, at Combat and Classics. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Shiloh. Take care.